Well, today we are continuing our, our, concluding our series on Christian affection. One aspect of Christian love as Jesus gives us commands, and he also tells us not just a command to love one another, but also this is really the basis of our witness in a world that's watching to see what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus says, by this, sorry, I'm, uh, I'm losing my microphone here. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. And so our love for one another is the way that the watching world will know that we are Jesus' followers. I had intended to take us to 1 Thessalonians today, but then as I was preparing this week, I was drawn to another text of Scripture, and so we're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 1. But I would encourage you to look at 1 Thessalonians because I think that's a great letter of Paul in a practical way demonstrating this kind of affection and Christian love. The, the language that he uses in the first few chapters of 1 Thessalonians just ooze and drip this affection. And, and there's uh, words in there like, you know, I long for you. I miss you. I can't wait till I'm with you again. I love hearing the good reports of what God is doing among you. He equates his love at one point like a mother to her child and another time like a father to his son. And so you definitely see that family type of love that we've been exploring the last couple of weeks that storge love, that natural love, that's a safe love that really provides a foundation for other loves. I guess my ear must have changed shape in the last week here. I'll fix that. But I, you know, as, as I was reading 2 Peter chapter 1, I think there's really some good practical teaching in God's word about how do we increase in our affection for one another. And as you are an interpreter of scripture as you are uh, going to God's word yourself. The simplest and easiest category of scripture to apply to your life are direct commandments, right? So that, that's just kind of a no-brainer. If God's word says do this, pretty simple, do it. If God's word says don't do this, pretty simple, don't do it. And you need God's help to obey uh, in, in both doing actions and not doing actions, right? So it's not just our willpower, our strength. That's a real simple kind of scripture passage. The more difficult ones are where there's instructions given to someone else, and we're trying to understand that and then appropriate it for ourselves, apply it to our lives, or when there's a narrative, when there's a story, and we're saying, well, what does this mean for us today in my context? What's the Holy Spirit speaking today? So the real simple passage is in Second. Peter chapter 1, where there's some real clear commands that we can simply take for ourselves as God's word speaking to us and giving us instruction. So that's where we're going to turn today. But as I was thinking about affection, it occurred to me that affection is to love as small talk is to conversation. So if you think about conversation and, and the role of small talk in conversation, have you ever met someone who all they can do is small talk? That's the only category they have, right? The weather, um, the, uh, the sports teams, you know, what's happening in, in the world of sports, maybe plans for the day. That's kind of all in the category of small talk. And maybe you've had people like that where you try to go a little bit deeper, but they are not really capable of or willing to engage in the other kinds of conversation that are pretty important to relationships. No direct conversation, no instruction giving or receiving, no feedback, no search talk, coming to solutions together, no sharing perspectives and ideas. And that's the risk of 
only having small talk. Well, what happens if you have no small talk? Have you ever met someone like that? They don't do greetings. They don't do goodbyes. They don't do how was your day. And it's all just intense. You say, hey, well, man, so you got yourself shoveled out. I want to talk to you about that issue. You're like, whoa, okay. Well, hello, my name is. And so there, there is a, an unhealthy uh, side of small talk where there's no small talk, no beginning with a greeting, no asking how your day was. And so there's a, a challenge to each of us as conversationalists to develop skill in small talk. If you have lost that in your marriage, reintroduce it. It's very important. Used appropriately, it actually lays the framework for other conversation. And I would say that when it comes to love, affection is just that thing. Maybe in your relationships, there's a lack of affection. And so you've moved away from the thank you notes, the words of affirmation, the tender physical touch. That's something that God, in his grace, can help you rebuild in your marriage and in your relationship with your family and your church family. But maybe you're in the other category where all you have is affection. And it's kind of just a a blasé niceness that doesn't get to those deeper kinds of loves. There's not that deep bond of friendship where you stand side by side looking at the same truth and holding fast to that truth that you both affirm. Maybe in marriage, when it's only affection, you've lost that eros passion, that desiring and pursuing one another as God intends. And if there's no agape, you've lost the ability to set aside your needs and sacrificially meet the needs of the other. So God's desire is that we grow in all areas of Christian love, and affection is one of those that, when I was thinking about it, it's really kind of like the WD-40 of relationships. You know, I mean, WD-40 is such a magical liquid, it fixes everything, right? You know, you go past all those other lubricants you might have on the shelf in your garage, that, that powdered graphite, that silicone spray, that dielectric grease, none of those compare to the utility and diversity of a good old can of WD-40. Anything that won't move will move with WD-40. And if it moves and shouldn't, you need a, a roll of duct tape to go with it, right? So, so affection is like the, the, the lube, the grease that keeps the gears of relationships moving. It lays a framework for us to express those other loves, which are also so important, and we'll get to later in the calendar year. Let's read together here in 2 Peter as, as we hear a theme of beginning with an identity firmly rooted in Christ and then developing and growing in the virtues that are befitting citizens of the heavenly kingdom. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. We hear, we hear an introduction from the author of this letter. This is Peter. This is the zealous disciple of Jesus that sometimes spoke before he thought. At one point, Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. He's the one that pulled out the sword on the day of Jesus' arrest and lopped off the ear of one of the servants of the high priest. He's the one who said, I'll never leave you, Lord. And Jesus said, before the rooster crows three times, you'll deny me. And that was fulfilled. He's the one at the end of John's gospel that Jesus appeared to in reconciliation and love and asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? You know I love you, Lord. Feed my sheep. This is the Peter that we're meeting here in this letter. He's the one who 
At the very end of John's Gospel, after Jesus had that, that conversation which really undid Peter's three denials of Jesus, as now he had three affirmations of his love for the risen Lord, Jesus at the end said, Feed my sheep and follow me. Now Peter introduces himself, and if you look at the words that we've just read there in 2 Peter chapter 1, the first part of that verse, servant in Greek is slave. So we're getting a glimpse of Peter's identity. He's a slave, and he's an apostle. He's one who is sent by Jesus. Now that's not Jesus' last name there. Christ is the word for king. So Peter, right off the bat, he knows who he is, the the same Jesus who rose from the dead and appeared to him and gave him that opportunity to three times affirm his love and said, Peter, you are going to be, you know, you who once clothed yourself and dressed yourself, you're going to have your arms stretched out. Someone else is going to clothe you. And that was foretelling the death that Peter would face as a follower of the risen Messiah. And Jesus said, follow me. And now that's his identity. I'm a slave of King Jesus. I'm one who is sent by King Jesus. That's how he begins his letter. Just in that simple verse, I'm challenged with the question, where is my identity? What's the basis of my identity? Is it as a dad? Is it as a husband? Is it as a pastor? Is it in my occupation, my role? What about for you? Is it your status, your possessions, your title? your demographic, your race, your gender? What's the real foundational basis of your identity? For Peter, his identity was in King Jesus and his righteousness. And that's a good foundation. Then he continues on, so that's who the letter's from. Who's it to? It's to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, who's in that category? Is that only the first century readers of this Pauline, or this, this not Pauline epistle, this letter by Peter? No, this is a letter that the Holy Spirit inspired Peter to write to first century believers and to 21st century believers and everybody in between who is of equal standing with Peter, the disciple, the apostle, the one that Jesus appeared to in person, the one who was an eyewitness of his majesty. We see a little later in this letter. The one who heard God's voice say, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased on the Mount of Transfiguration. That faith, that's the same identical faith that we have, Peter says, to us as readers of the letter. There's not not different tiers of Christians You know, it's not the first century eyewitness believers that have a special status and the rest of us have have a faith, but not quite as cool as that faith. Peter's saying to his readers that we have obtained a faith of equal standing. Not because we deserve it. Not because we've earned it. Not because of any other identity basis that we might have. But why is that? Why is our faith the same as Peter's? By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The righteousness of Jesus. Our God, Jesus, fully God and fully man. 
our Savior, Jesus, the one who rescues us from a world of sin and saves us so that we can live for righteousness. There's a from and a for in that salvation. And oh, by the way, his name is King Jesus. I love the obtained word there at the second part of verse 1. It's something that we have fully appropriated. It's not something we're still working toward. You know, someday I hope to have a faith like Peter did. I hope that because of the righteousness of King Jesus, our God and Savior, I can sometime have a faith that will last and form the basis of my identity like Peter did. No, if you're in Christ, you have that today. There's no working toward that. There's no development and progress toward that salvation. That's all based on Christ's righteousness. That's sufficient. And so grab a hold of that word obtained with confidence and faith to know that Jesus' finished work makes it possible for you to live in right relationship with God and with others. As we're growing in Christian affection and all the other virtues, it's really important we begin with a correct understanding of our identity. Because, you know, our human tendency, probably because of our parents, is to think that there's a cause and effect to everything we do. I go, oh, Ariel, you, you put the toy back in the toy box. Yay, we love you. Oh, no, no, you threw your food on the floor. Naughty. And that got into our psyche, and we begin to think that our relationship with God is based on human effort. It's important to remember that our identity is in Christ, in his righteousness. We have obtained that. That faith is ours because of Jesus' work. And that confidence lets us then grow and develop in those steps of obedience that affect our relationships with others, including this area of affection. So that's who the letter is from. That's who the letter is to. And here's the blessing, the affectionate words of blessing that Peter speaks at the beginning here in verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Words of blessing, this is a common greeting that you'll see a lot at the beginning of Paul's letters, grace and peace. There's affection in those words. It's really the overflow of knowing God more. That's where you get grace, right? It's the gift of God. How do you have peace? It's the righteousness of Christ that provides that grace and peace that allows us then to greet one another in that way, to wish and bless and speak those words of truth that we know are ours because we've obtained them through Christ. And as that grace and peace overflows in our hearts, it allows us to know our God more, to know our Lord Jesus more fully, and then to live out lives as citizens of his kingdom. Right at the beginning of this letter, I would just challenge each of you and, and each of us to root our identity in Christ and in, and in his righteousness. Because apart from him, any attempt at virtuous living is going to be hollow, empty, meaningless, ineffective, and unfruitful. There's people that, you know, will compare themselves to the guy down the street. You know, well, I'm, I'm not as bad as that guy. I'm pretty virtuous. Did you hear what, he, what she did? I'm better off than she is. And that's about as far as we can get in our own strength. But when our identity is in him, there's a confidence, there's a sure foundation that we can build on. So then Peter continues here in verse 3. A reminder of 
where the source of our strength is and what promises have we been given by God. So he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. This is the salvation for. right? There's not really a mention of the salvation from here in this first verse, you know. He could have gone into a, a reminder of that, the good things in the past that our sins are forgiven, that our guilt has been removed, that Jesus took the penalty upon himself. Those are all truths that we need to lay hold of when we look to the cross and the price that Jesus paid. But there's also a salvation for. And that's the, the power that we need to live in ways that are pleasing to God, to function as citizens of his kingdom to live in right relationship with others. His divine power has granted to us all things. You know, it's not a pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Try a little harder. Do more. It's a rest in the power that is yours because of Jesus' finished work on the cross. Everything that you need for life and godliness is provided to you by him. And so the same Jesus whose blood was sufficient to save us is powerful to change us in the ways that we need to have our hearts aligned with his, to be his hands and feet extended. And the, and the way that we do that is through knowledge of him, growing to know him more, spending time with him, spending time in his word to see him as he is, fellowshipping with other believers where his presence is with us and growing as his spirit fills us and indwells us. As we grow in knowledge of him, then we're able to step into what he's called us to. What has he called us to? He's called us to his own glory and excellence. There, uh, you know, in, in our Western Christian language, we call that godliness, becoming like God. In the Eastern Church, in Orthodox Christianity, they call this process deification. Now, we're not comfortable with that one, but it's really the same thing, becoming like God. And so we look to our God who created us in his image. We look to Jesus who exemplifies bearing the image of God. And the God who came into our world to save us from that life of sin enables us to walk in ways that will change us so that we align with his glory and excellence. When you look at the attributes of our God, his goodness, his love, his justice, his mercy, and you spend time with him, and you allow his spirit to change you, and you become conformed to the image of his son Jesus, you start to look more like God. You start to bear the image of the creator of the universe better than you did before Jesus began that work of transformation. And someday we will meet him face to face and we'll stand in his presence and there will be no more sin and no more shortcomings and we'll see him as he is and we will be like him for we shall see him as he is. That's that process of moving toward godliness, moving toward deification as they say in the Orthodox Church. And it doesn't just begin in the afterlife. It happens today. That's why Peter writes this letter to those whose identity is rooted in the righteousness of Christ and says, because of what Jesus did, begin to develop these virtues in you 
that God has adequately provided the power you'll need down that journey. Not only the power, but also the promises. Verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of its sinful desire. What are the great, the very great promises, the precious and very great promises of God? Peter doesn't list them out. I'd encourage you to take some time with your New Testament, with your whole Bible, in your experience of reading the Bible to this point, or maybe as a, as a project for the year ahead, write it on a bookmark. And write it at the top, what are the precious and very great promises of God? And search his word because there may be some that are unexpected to you that you'll come across. And Peter's bringing all that in and saying it's, it's the sins forgiven. It's that new life. There's a precious and very great promise of abundant life. Eternal life. Salvation. Sanctification. Becoming holy. Promises of freedom from and freedom for. Promises of adoption as sons and daughters. Precious and very great promises of joy and peace and purpose and grace and hope. And you could add to that list as you dig through God's word. Say, what are the precious and very great promises of God? The one who gives us the divine power to live in righteousness has made promises to us and his promises are sure he intends to fulfill those things that he's promised. And that should bring confidence as we walk in obedience toward godliness, toward becoming like him, escaping from corruption and sinful desire, freed from sin and freed for righteousness. I think the reminder here before Paul, or Peter gets, I keep saying Paul, sorry about that. Before Peter gets into some instructions about how do you grow, what do you add, what are the virtues that we as sons and daughters of King Jesus are called to put on. It's important to remember that our identity is in him. Our source of power is him. And his promises are true. And once we lay a hold of that, we're ready for the instructions, right? So let's move into that next section now in verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. This reminds me of the list of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. It's a different list, and yet it's a list of fruit that should be on the branches of every believer. Fruit that is spiritual in nature. It's not ordinary in nature. It's not of this life. It's not of human effort. It's a fruit that's produced by the power and promises of God. And these are, these are things that should be growing. Uh, in my version here that I was reading from, it used the word supplement. Yours might say add to, right? Add to your faith. 
virtue, add to your virtue knowledge or supplement. And so one leads into the other. I don't know that it's a sequence. I don't know that you have to begin with one and you can't develop the, the, uh, the next one until you've mastered the prior one, but it's, it's the picture of continuing to add an increase in these virtues that are typical of a follower of Jesus, of a son and daughter of the king. Those of you who are parents, uh, prob- you probably have a list of virtues you'd like to see in your own kids. And how, do you, how do you develop those? You know, what if you want your, your child to be honest? You may turn to the dictionary and read, you know, Webster's definition of what honesty is. And the Latin roots, the, the number of syllables, where the accent on the word falls. But I doubt it. I, I don't know that that exercise would really produce the virtue of honesty in your children. You're more likely to tell stories because stories are really good at transforming. You might tell some stories of, of honesty, like you know, a former president who was honest about cutting down a cherry tree, right? You know, like we've probably all heard that story. And stories have a good way of, of capturing the heart and the, and the desire to develop those virtues in ourselves. Might be why this book is revealed in story form. As God is looking at us as his followers, that he didn't just give us a dictionary with a bunch of word definitions or a, a theology textbook, but he put it in story form so that we can have a picture of what are the characteristics, attributes, marks of excellence, and virtue that would be markers of godliness, markers of his heart, and to provide pictures of that for us so that we can then live that out and develop what he desires to see within us. There is a, an element of work here, right? So don't be so afraid of works-based righteousness that you reject all works of righteousness. Uh, Peter is, is giving permission and is, in fact instruction to say, do works of righteousness. <laughs> you, you've been saved. Your identity is rooted in the righteousness of Christ. It must make an impact in you or it's just empty. He's going to get to that argument in the next few verses. So he says, make every effort. There is some hard work required. You know, notice he didn't put that back in verse 1. Because you work so hard, you have the same faith as us. He didn't say that in the first couple of verses. Our salvation is because of Christ's righteousness. Our identity is firmly in him. And now there's obedience that comes. And eventually, as he develops this argument, we'll see that it's not the kind of obedience that you resentfully just do because mom and dad said so and I don't really want to. It's the kind of obedience that you delight in doing because of the excellence of our God and his great love for us. It should bring joy, and it does. And so we build and grow in these things. There is, uh, it's his power, it's his promises, but it's our active response And then you look at that list and toward the end of the list, there's a couple of words that we've been talking about as a church. Uh, He calls it brotherly affection. It is that word phileo. It's that kind of brotherly love that we haven't really gotten into a lot in this study. But it's the kind of love when two brothers stand side by side looking at the same truth and saying, I can't believe I found another person who sees it the way I do. 
And it's, it's the friendship type of love. And so we add that to, and then the last word he uses is that word agape, which is that me putting my needs aside in order to meet your needs kind of love. And those are the, the fruits that should be developing in our lives as followers of the king. And he goes on to talk about fruit here now in verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So there you have, you have a picture of increase, kind of like he just used the, the word supplement or add to. So they are yours, you've obtained them, and they are increasing, you're still striving toward them. You already have your salvation. You're still working out your salvation. There's transformation still underway in the life of the believer. So your identity, your status, your position are things that you've already obtained in Christ. But then add a plus sign to that and add to that category of things that you have obtained the becoming, the growing, the transformation, the changing. And there's times that you've got communities of believers that would like to have one without the other, right? If you, if you get into a works-based righteousness, you start to think that even your salvation was because you tried really hard. But on the other hand, you could have the cheap grace side, which is, hey, I've already obtained all this stuff. What else do I need to become and do and grow? I think the challenge is to keep the faith and the obedience together. So it's an obedient faith that is a marker and a characteristic of those who are in Christ. And the risk of not growing and not supplementing and not adding to and not developing these virtues, not appropriating God's power and promises to our lives in interaction with one another and in obedience to him, is that we become ineffective and unfruitful. Exactly. We should be terrified at that prospect. Thank you. That was almost as good as an amen. Yeah, it's, it's terrifying because in John 15, Jesus gives some commandments. And I'll read this for you. I don't have it on the screen, but you can make a note of the reference and look it up. John 15, verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. And here's the fruit part of Jesus' words in John 15. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. So Jesus' very instructions to his followers there in John's gospel were related to love and fruit. That's part of the blessing and joy of being 
in God's presence as, as belonging to the Father, as being called friends of God, that we would bear fruit and grow. How many of you would say you'd rather have your life be effective and fruitful than ineffective and unfruitful? Is there anyone here today? Okay, good. Get his little, yep, little calisthenics. Easy one, softball. And so Peter is again saying, you know, add to, supplement, build these virtues, tap into God's power, believe God's promises, stand on those, allow him to continue that work of transformation in you that started on the cross. Because if you do, you're going to be effective and you're going to be fruitful just like Jesus instructed. And if you don't, if you give up that developmental process of supplementing and adding to and beginning with faith and increasing with virtue and knowledge and brotherly affection and love and that whole list here in 2 Peter chapter 1, there's going to be fruit. Fruit that will abide. Fruit that will last. And in verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Again, again, there's an element of works here in this verse. There's diligence that's required. Your works don't secure salvation for you, but they do ensure that God has chosen you and called you. It keeps your feet firmly planted in the faith as you walk out that transformation that Jesus did in your life. And then in verse 11, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, notice that that entrance is provided for you. It's not in this way. You will obtain an entrance of your own effort. No, there's, there's a constant reminder in here of both sides. The finished work of Christ on the cross, his righteousness, his power, his promises, your entrance into his kingdom that is provided for you, and then hand in hand with that. Now, if there's a kingdom, and if the Lord and Savior of that kingdom is, is a, the God-man, King Jesus, then it follows that there's a way of living and being that is befitting loyal subjects of that kingdom. And that's the list that Peter has just walked us through. Add, develop, supplement, grow, nurture, and as you do, you will be effective and fruitful. Look at, look at all those words there in this last verse that we've looked at, verse 11, that describe Jesus. Let's look at it again. In this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You don't just get the Savior that's probably the, the part we like the best, right? Oh man, my Savior? Yeah, yeah, because man, He saved me from a life of sin. He saved me from condemnation. He saved me from guilt. He saved me from purposelessness. He saved me from eternal death. That's awesome. But the good news is that this is a three-for-one special. You not only get the Savior for free, but you also get the Lord and the King at no extra charge. Well, actually, the charge is all that you are. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow. And that's the gift, that's the invitation that's to us today. 
That's, that's what's going to radically transform your marriage, your family, our church, as we each root our identity in Christ, stand on his promises, walk in his power, and allow him to continue his transforming work in us. Maybe in your marriage, affection is what's been lacking. How do you grow in that area? Well, begin with each of you instead of trying to change the other. Work on changing you. Be diligent. Work hard. Strive for godliness. But begin with that identity in him and say, oh yeah, God, I need a reminder that I'm your son because that's going to be the key to changing my marriage. When I've lost sight of that and I've started to think that my identity has some other basis or foundation, I'm not a very good husband. You know, oh, oh yes, God, remind me that it's your power at work within me changing me, that there's more growth and progress. There are those things that I've obtained and yet there's still an unfinished work that's happening in me personally that you are bringing about. If you've got a husband and a wife who both have that perspective, what kind of beauty do you think is going to emerge in that marriage, right? And instead it's easier to point fingers at one another. Oh, once you fix this, then maybe I'll think about changing one little thing in me. But what if we both stood on, on the teaching that we've read here today in 2 Peter? What about in our, in our families, extended families? Again, being the first one that says, all right, I, I'm a work in progress. I'm going to submit to the transforming work of my God and Savior, the righteousness of Christ, moving toward his own glory and excellence becoming godly, allowing him to continue that work. Instead of waiting for that extended family member to fix their life, I'm going to let God do his work within me. What about in our church as well? That if the world's looking to us as a picture of believing community, what does it mean to follow King Jesus and we're the best example they have? We better know where identity is. We better know our power source and be plugged in. We need to have the promises of God in our own minds and repeated to one another frequently and then be adding to and supplementing and growing in and developing not out of a sense of duty or chore or obligation because of joy in being citizens of that heavenly kingdom that's already here and it's still coming and it just gets better as we go. Let's stand in prayer today. We do need that power, don't we? We do need those promises and let's ask that God will remind us of those truths this week. God, I thank you for each person that was able to make it through the snow today. It's been a joy to worship together, to go to your word together with the body of Christ. We thank you for those who weren't able to make it today as well and ask that their homes would be a place where your presence is very very real today as they know that your love is there, that your grace and peace is available for them as well. And Lord, today I pray that we would have a reminder of our identity rooted in the righteousness of Christ. That Lord, we would have the strength that we need to continue to grow and develop as you've called us to. That we wouldn't believe the lies of the enemy, but instead we believe the promises of God. That as we read your word, we would believe and grow and increase in knowledge of you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for this 
community of believers today, we ask that you go with each of us now into our homes, that affection would grow in marriages and in families and in our church as well as we obey your command to love one another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.